Today's scripture is a reading found in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So far a whole year, so for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Father, I thank you for the testimony that we heard this morning from Patrice. I'm sure if many others in the congregation had the opportunity, they would say the same thing. It is so easy for us to be overwhelmed. But we thank you for the gift of your grace. We thank you for the evidence of your grace. We thank you for how you make your grace visible to us, tangible. Father, I do pray that as we delight in your word this morning, that you would help us. Father, I need the help of your Holy Spirit as I preach this. and We need the help of your Holy Spirit as we hear this. Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to do your will. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is explaining to the disciples why he teaches in parables. Jesus teaches the disciples that some people in their midst, they, they have eyes, 
but they cannot see. And they have ears, but they do not hear. Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, and then he says, but blessed are your eyes, talking about the disciples, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. What kind of eyes and ears was Jesus talking about? For all who come face to face with God's grace and have eyes to see and ears to hear, there will be a response. I'm choosing these words intentionally, so let me, let me say them one more time. For all who come face to face with God's grace and are given eyes to see and ears to hear, there will be a response. If that person is not saved, they will repent and believe, and their heart will be regenerated. If the person is saved and they encounter an experience with God's grace, they will delight in God's grace, and they will be driven to continue in obedience to Jesus. So we happen to see both of these responses in the passage that we're looking at this morning, both those who did not believe but came to believe because of God's grace, and those who were believers but experienced God's grace and delighted in it. Today's passage, it it calls us to appreciate the activity of God which displays the grace of God in the midst of chaos. And boy, do we need that right now, right? I could not have written any better illustrations this week than what we have seen in the news all week long. Today's passage, it is a great reminder to us that God is at work at all times, even when we think all hope is lost. So if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you can be encouraged in your lowest of lows. At the end of Acts chapter 7, we we read about the account of Stephen becoming the first Christian martyr when when he was put to death by the Sanhedrin. Stephen is is put to death, and chapter 8 begins this way. And Saul approved of there the, the Sanhedrin killing him, Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Listen to verse 4. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Though the death of Stephen and and the resulting scattering of Christians was tragic, catastrophic even, These events were God's instrument used to spread the gospel and to build his son's church. There happens to be a direct link between the end of Acts 7 and beginning of Acts 8 to the passage that we're looking at at the end of Acts chapter 11. So in just a few moments, as 
we begin working through the end of Acts chapter 11, you will see the connection. As you think about all that we've learned up until this point, you realize that Acts is a book about the acts or the actions of the apostles and other people important to the founding and flourishing of the church, the body of Christ. We've seen that in passages that we looked at up until this point, and we'll see it again today. Acts is also a, a book about the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We've seen that in the passages that we've looked at up until this point, and we'll see it in the passage that we're looking at today. But in addition to these things, the book of Acts is an instruction manual of sorts on how to see. In Acts, we, we learn that all that can be seen with our eyes is not all that there is to be seen. Learning to see what appears to be tragedy on the surface is actually the fulfillment of God's plan that helps us in our pursuit of following Christ. In the opening chapter of Ephesians, Paul says to the saints in Ephesus, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know What does he want you to know? The hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance of his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul's prayer was that the saints in Ephesus would be able to know the blessings they have in Christ. So how do we come to know these things? Paul tells us that happens through the eyes of our hearts being enlightened. How does that happen? I believe it comes as a result of seeing and acknowledging the work of God in passages like the one we're looking at this morning, right? As the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, and as we look at a passage like the one that we're going to be seeing this morning, we can exalt in God's glory. We can look at the grace that He has shown us, and we can worship Him. In saying that the book of Acts serves us as an instruction manual on how to see, what I mean is that Luke is giving us deep insight by pointing out God's intimate involvement in the lives of his people. So when the world seems to be collapsing into madness, which it does seem to be doing, when very few things make sense, when it seems like wickedness always wins, guess what? Not only are we describing our world, we're describing the world that the first century Christians of Acts were living in. We may be led to think that the things that we're encountering today are new, but they are much the same as what our brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced throughout the history of the church. We could breeze through Acts 11 verses 19 to 30, and we could walk away with the understanding that Believing Jews shared the gospel with Gentiles. Some Gentiles were saved, and because of the proclamation of the gospel, those who were saved gave gifts to other Christians. All those things are true. 
But is that all there is to see in this passage? By stepping back and taking the cues Luke is giving us, we can see how God orchestrated the events of Acts 11, verses 19 to 30. As we understand how God orchestrated the events of Acts 11, 19 to 30, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened so that we can know and be assured of the grace of God in the lives of these first century Christians and in our lives. So how well can you see what the grace of God has done in your life and in the lives of others? I have three simple points this morning. Number one, God's orchestration of salvation. God's orchestration of salvation. We'll see that in verses 19 to 24. Second point is God's orchestration of instruction. That's in verses 25 and 26. And lastly, God's orchestration of provision. And that'll be in verses 27 to 30. Friends, Luke invites us to see what the grace of God has done in the passage that we're looking at this morning. If you're not there, I invite you to turn with me to Acts 11. Acts chapter 11. And the first thing that we're going to see in verses 19 to 24 is how God orchestrated salvation in Antioch. Look again at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So in setting up how the gospel has made its way to Antioch, Luke reminds us, of the events of Acts 7 and 8. Many Jews who had heard the gospel in Jerusalem and were saved, they were forced to leave Jerusalem due to persecution that followed Stephen's death. Many of us have seen the images coming out of Afghanistan this past week and realize what is happening there is very similar to what took place after Stephen was martyred. Granted, what is happening in Afghanistan is not limited to the church. However, we do have firsthand accounts that Christians are being singled out and hunted down because of their faith. And we can look at situations like that and wonder, where is God in this madness? Or how could God allow this to happen? That is, until we read passages like Acts 11 verses 19 to 30, and are reminded that God is not limited or hindered by the sinfulness of man or by everyday tragedies that take place with no one to blame. So whether a earthquake, a tornado, hurricane, or a humanitarian crisis, God is not hindered in his plan and his response. After the believing Jews were forced out of Jerusalem, some traveled north up the coast through Phoenicia and over to Cyprus and even up to Antioch, which was over 300 miles from Jerusalem. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire and would become 
Paul's base of operation for his missionary journeys eventually. Antioch was a, a spiritual hub and, and was home to the worship of Adonis and Apollos, Daphne and Poseidon, Tyche and Zeus. Antioch's reputation of, of moral decay was so bad that it was blamed for its influence on Rome. So, so take the worst city in all of America and compare it to Antioch, and, and I have a feeling that we would say Antioch is polluting our worst city. Luke tells us some of the Jewish evangelists focused on spreading the word to the Jews while others told the good news of the Lord Jesus to the Gentiles. At first glance, it appears as though this is just the natural work of faithful and obedient followers of Jesus. They are saved in Jerusalem. They're discipled. No doubt Peter and the other apostles had shared with them about the Great Commission and taught them to obey all that the Lord Jesus had commanded. And they are doing what obedient followers of Jesus do in sharing the gospel. So whether in Jerusalem or in Antioch, they're doing what they've been trained to do, right? One of the, th one of the things that stands out to me, though, about Luke's account of this is how no one person is given credit for the evangelistic explosion. There's a, an evangelistic uh, zeal here. A lot's happening, but we don't see any credit given to one person or even a group of people. There's a blanket of anonymity until you get to verse 21. So look at verse 21 again. What do we see? The Lord. What does it say? The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So who gets the credit for the salvations in Antioch? The Lord does. Not only had he providentially worked out the scattered's arrival in Antioch, he oversaw their sharing the gospel and was at work in the hearts of those who would believe. So how do we know this? Again, the beginning of verse one, uh, 21 tells us the Lord's hand was with them. In other words, had the Lord's hand not been with them, all of their efforts in sharing the gospel would have fallen on deaf ears. So what caused this great turning to the Lord in Antioch? It was simply that the Lord's hand was with the evangelists. When preparing for this sermon, while thinking about God's orchestration of salvation in Antioch, a number of verses came to my mind. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. 1 Corinthians 15.58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And then Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Acts 11, 19 to 21 is a good corrective should we ever slip into thinking that our efforts in evangelism 
are our efforts alone. From the four verses I just referenced, it's clear that the Lord must be involved. We do not want to labor if the labor is not in the Lord. God has invited us into a partnership of ministry, but while he can accomplish much without us, we cannot accomplish anything of eternal value apart from him. So I'm not sure where I, I first heard someone say this, but it's been said that the first audience of every preacher's sermon is himself. In other words, we preach the message to ourselves many times before we ever stand to preach it to you. And it's important for you to know that we as your pastors, we've had to stare into the mirror that is God's word during the week before we ever ask you to do that. And this is so good for us to think about the Lord's activity in, in our efforts. We can spin our wheels and, and work our fingers to the bone, but if the Lord is not in it, it is all in vain. Luke's assessment given in verses 19 to 21, they remind us that we labor, but the Lord builds. We labor, but that labor should be in the Lord. We labor, but the Lord gives the growth. And as we labor, we work at it with all of our heart for the Lord. A major work of the Lord was experienced in Antioch, and word traveled back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So even though the church didn't have social media at the time, there was no Facebook or Twitter, somehow, it's hard to imagine how, but somehow the word got back to Jerusalem. And Daryl Bach points out in his commentary on Acts that the beginning of verse 22 literally reads, was heard in the ears. The news of God's orchestration of salvation in Antioch was heard in the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they immediately wanted to send a representative to validate this claim. Validating a claim like this of God's work, it was not unusual. You'll, you'll remember how Peter and John were sent to examine Philip's mission in Samaria back in chapter 8, and how the apostles also questioned Peter about his encounter with Cornelius at the beginning of this chapter. God had orchestrated salvation in Antioch through the work of the unnamed group who had been scattered after the persecution in Jerusalem. But he was also going to use his instrument named Barnabas to save more people. If you'll remember back to Acts 4, where we first heard of Barnabas, we're told why he was called Barnabas. His name was actually Joseph, but the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas. So why would they call him Barnabas? Well, the name means son of of encouragement. And if you follow his actions throughout the book of Acts, this nickname is very fitting. Look again at verse 23. When he, when, when Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. 
He was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So obviously the the title for today's sermon comes from verse 23. So let's take just a moment to dwell on that phrase because not only was it important to the first century audience who would be encouraged by Luke's account of the establishment of the early church, it's important to us today. Barnabas sounds like an incredibly positive guy, but you can imagine on his trip 300 miles north from Jerusalem to Antioch, maybe some of the thoughts that were going through his mind. Were the reports true that the grace of God had been unleashed on Antioch? With all the trappings of the third largest city in the Roman Empire, a city filled with idolatry and paganism, a city that was blamed for polluting Rome, With all of these things stacked against it, how much could the grace of God really have accomplished? Certainly, there was much to be seen there in Antioch. Certainly, much of what God had done, many evidences of his grace were available and readily seen because Barnabas saw what the grace of God had done and he was glad. This brings to mind a couple of questions for us. Do we see what the grace of God has done in and around us? When is the last time you you took a moment to assess what the grace of God has done in your life and the lives of those around you? And the second question is, what is our response? Have you seen the grace of God at work? And what have you done in light of that? No doubt, Barnabas was an encourager. It came naturally to him. But but I don't think the Bible is teaching here that noticing the work of God's grace and responding to that with gladness is something that is limited to people with Barnabas's personality profile. Think for a moment why Barnabas was glad. He realized the new Christians in Antioch were now new creations in Christ, formerly dead in their transgressions and sins, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, they who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The only response to that, the only response to someone who was dead, a man, woman, boy, or girl, has now been made alive by Christ, is gladness. Friends, have you seen what the grace of God has done in your life, and are you glad? You see what the grace of God is doing in your midst. If so, what is your response? Spiritually dead men and women were made alive because of God's orchestration of salvation in Antioch. And on the hills of salvation comes discipleship. And we see this in verses 25 and 26. So God orchestrated salvation. And next we see God's orchestration of instruction. Look again at verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, 
Luke adds as a footnote here, were called Christians first at Antioch. So think about the duo God assembled for the task of discipleship in Antioch. You have Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who is described as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Him linking arms with the one-time persecutor of Christians who had been radically saved and commissioned by Jesus as his chosen instrument to preach Christ to the Gentiles. You can't make this stuff up. Back in Acts 9, Barnabas had vouched for Saul when people were afraid of him and no one believed that he was a disciple. Can, can you imagine Barnabas? I mean, what? I can't wait to meet this guy. Saul, everybody was terrified of him. And here's Barnabas just putting his arm around him and saying, come on, let's go meet the other disciples. You can imagine some people were like, that Barnabas is out of his mind. And look at what the Lord does with him here in Acts 11. Now Barnabas is bringing Saul back with him to Antioch to train the new disciples. Discipleship, we say this often, discipleship is a lifelong endeavor. We, we never graduate from it. As Christians, we are all called both to be disciples and to make disciples until the day that we die. That Barnabas and Saul taught the new Christians for a year in Antioch. It, it doesn't mean that we have a one-year tour of duty and are discharged from service. Rather than looking at this as only a year, I think the emphasis is on the word whole. This was a whole year of teaching and instruction from Saul. That, again, we'll, we'll come to know him as Paul. Saul of Tarsus, alongside the son of encouragement. You get the sense that this was the equivalent to Navy SEALs, Bud School, or the Q course for the Green Berets. How did God orchestrate this instruction that was taking place in Antioch? Not only had the grace of God been foundational to the salvation in Antioch, the grace of God was foundational to the instruction given by Saul and Barnabas. It really is staggering when you step back and consider what all had taken place up until this point in the lives of Saul and Barnabas to enable them to be standing before these new Christians in Antioch. Right? Any good that God does through you, it's the same way. You have to step back and say, that good is only made possible because of what God has done, the grace that he has shown you in your life. So verse 26 tells us a lot about the role of discipleship in the life of the local church. First, Barnabas realized the importance of the task at hand. He, he could have said, you know, these folks are saved. I've done all that I need to do. I'm packing up. I'm going back to Jerusalem. But he knew in obedience to Christ, he had to disciple these new Christians. He also realized he needed help. He, he could have said, you know what? It's true. These people need to be discipled. I'm just going to buckle down and do it myself. But what does he do? He goes and gets help. He goes and seeks. I Think about this journey from Antioch all the way around to Tarsus. He had to go get Saul and bring him back to help him out. He traveled a great distance and sacrificed so much. We think about how 
we do likewise. We make sacrifices in order to disciple people. One more observation is that together, Barnabas and Saul devoted themselves to this task of discipleship. Discipleship can be messy. It can be costly. It does require you actually meeting with believers. And and we see Barnabas and Saul doing that for a whole year. One more thing to note here. when, When thinking about how God orchestrated the instruction for the new followers of Jesus in Antioch, The lives of these believers, listen, they were so impacted by salvation and instruction that they took on a new identity in their hometown. It's thought the name Christian was given to them by those outside the church. So this is not a name that they came up with themselves. This new designation was used to identify those who belonged to or were identified by Christ Some commentators say that Christian means belonging to the party of, and they highlight how these disciples would have been seen as the ones who were of Jesus' party. These new believers were standing out in Antioch, and their very identity was shaped by the one they followed. So it's good to remember that this name Christian, it's rooted in standing out and not fitting in. So how are we as Christians standing out? The embrace of this new name shows us that the the promise of Ephesians 2.14 has not only been fulfilled by Christ, but that these first century Christians are beginning to trade in their old identities as Jew and Gentile for the shared identity as Christian. God's grace has been seen by Barnabas, it's been seen by Saul and even by those in Antioch who were calling this new group of believers Christians. So God had orchestrated salvation. He orchestrated instruction. And in verses 27 to 30, we're going to see that God orchestrated provision. Look at verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul were not the only seasoned saints who were pouring into this new community of faith. We're we're told that prophets from Jerusalem visited Antioch, and the new believers heard some unsettling news in one of these encounters. I said earlier that this wonderful news of the grace of God in Antioch was bookended by tragedy. On the front end, we have the persecution that led to the scattering of evangelists who brought the good news to Antioch. Now the end of this section we learn there's going to be a famine. Notice how the Lord uses the news learned from the prophecy. What is the response of the new believers? They decided to bless the brothers and sisters in Christ living in Judea who were going to be impacted by the famine. Generosity is not exclusive to Christians. Many of us know of people who are incredibly generous but would not claim to be a Christian. 
the world is filled with people who give of their time and resources. They do not identify as Christian. Though generosity is not limited to Christians alone, we know for certain there would be no examples of human generosity were it not for the common grace of God. God's common grace is the only answer to why someone who is not a Christian displays generosity. The common grace of God has many benefits and manifests itself in many ways. One of the benefits and one of the manifestations of God's common grace or grace that is available to all of mankind is human generosity. However, what we see here in Acts 11, verses 29 to 30, is a special grace. What we see here is God's unique grace reserved for believers that is manifesting as Christians blessing Christians. And this generosity in Acts 11, 29 to 30, is a direct result of lives that have been impacted by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, seeing a need and having a spirit-born desire to help meet that need. So it's fitting that this comes on the heels of their intensive one-year training, right? They're passing the test. They've been trained, and, and the Spirit of God is just overflowing in their lives, and they see a need, and they want to help meet that need. This cooperation of generosity is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ serving its members. And so while Samaritan's Purse does amazing work, it's, it's important to note that not only are, by giving to them, through them, not only are we supporting Christians wherever they are ministering, but the amazing thing is this work is going out in the name of Jesus so that those who are not saved can hear the gospel and be saved. But again, this is a cooperative work of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ serving its members. And the cooperative effort reveals no one member in this new church could meet the need. And as each one was able, I love that phrase, as each one was able, they pitched in to provide relief in light of this tragedy. Granted, the Lord could have prevented the famine, but in his providence, he instead used this new church in Antioch as an instrument of his grace to bless their brothers and sisters in Christ. Chances are, these new Christians would never meet the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem this side of the resurrection, but that didn't stop them from being a blessing. After all Barnabas and Saul had seen in Antioch, after the many displays of the grace of God that had taken place, can you imagine, can you imagine how full their hearts were as they carried the gift back to Jerusalem to present to the elders of the church there? In the case of Acts 11, verses 19 to 30, were it not for tragedy, listen, were it not for tragedy, we would not have the examples of the grace of God that we do. God's plans are never thwarted by tragedy. Instead, what we see in his word is that he uses tragedy 
as a means of accomplishing his plans for his glory and our ultimate good. Let's pray. Father, only a holy God could do what we have seen, what we have beheld here in this passage this morning. Only a holy God could use tragedy in the death of Stephen, leading to believers being scattered. And, And those believers that were scattered, doing what they had been commissioned to do, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, and arriving in Antioch, a wicked city, but putting down roots and trusting that what they were doing, the labor that they were doing, was not in vain. And lo and behold, your hand was with them, and people were saved. And the city would come up with a a nickname for these new Christians, and, and Saul, soon to be Paul, would put down roots here in the city, and it would become a a base of operations for him. And the gospel would continue to pulsate throughout the region and around the globe because your hand was with these people. And this church was established. And the people were trained. They were instructed. And then they were used by you to provide for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, what a great example for us, that out of tragedy, you do amazing things. Your grace has been seen, and we are glad. Father, help us to delight in this truth this morning. My prayer is that if there's anyone here who has not surrendered their life to Jesus, that today would be the day. Father, may they repent of their sin and believe in Christ alone, trusting that He alone can forgive them of their sin. May today be the day that their heart is regenerated and they are made new and that they have fellowship with You, the Son, and the Spirit. Thank You for the grace that You've shown us. May we go this week rejoicing, because there is nothing too big for you. There's no tragedy too horrific for your grace to not overwhelm. So we give you thanks for these things. It's in Christ's name we pray by the Holy Spirit. Amen.